He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Fucking world has gone insane. 
We've only been away from the, these recording lines for a week, and in that time, there's been two unthinkable and absolutely uh, astonishing uh, tragedies that have happened, and, and we've had this happen a couple times since we've been together doing this show, where there's been obviously the Las Vegas shooting, and then there was the attack at the baseball field, and we've kind of lived through some of these things and trying to wrap your head around them piece by piece, but now it's two in one week, and it's like it goes from uh, being horrible and tragic in New York to being almost near what we saw in Las Vegas in Texas. So just looking at it, Shane, you know, what are your kind of your thoughts gathering this uh, information we've gotten over the last week with these two unspeakable tragedies? Well, we'll do the most recent first. Uh, I mean, you know, in, in Texas, uh, Sutherland Springs, uh, Texas, 25, 30 miles uh, east, southeast of San Antonio, uh, this piece of shit is, is the only way you can say a guy by the name of Devin Kelly, 26-year-old Air Force veteran, uh, walks into a church as they're worshiping and opens fire and starts walking up to them point-blank range and shooting them in the head, including an 18-month-old baby. Uh, you know, like astonishing words you use. That's, I, I don't think that's maybe strong enough. I mean, this is one of those things where you you know, you got to think, like, my God, has has any has everybody in the world just gone insane? What uh, what's the purpose? And the reports are that this guy was pissed off at his his ex wife's mother, his ex mother in law, and that's where she worshipped. Okay, fine, and sit and wait for her in the parking lot and get her. Not I'm joking, of course, you know. But but you're going to walk into a, a church full of people and just start blowing everybody away. Uh, or trying to, uh, to get this woman that you despise. And, and honestly, what is, you know, I went through a pretty bad divorce and, and I had one of those mother-in-laws that mother-in-law jokes are made about, uh, <laughs> could never imagine in my wildest dreams, even contemplating doing something like that, let alone carrying it out. And, you know, it, 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 not that it's worse by this fact, but, you know, this, uh, Sutherland Springs, from what I understand is just a, teeny tiny town 600 people so you know everybody in that town knew everybody that died in that church uh you know they've got to be swimming in grief uh it's it's just a jaw-dropping you know when you when you you listen to the news reports and you watch it and then you know doing my research you go through look at these pictures you know like a 14 year old uh uh what was her name annabelle uh, Pomeroy, who was the daughter of the pastor, uh, Frank Pomeroy, who just luckily uh, happened to be traveling and so was not in the church that day, but ends up losing his daughter, 14-year-old girl, uh, Haley Kruger, a 16-year-old who wanted to be a nurse and had served breakfast that morning at the church. The Holcomb family, uh, eight members and plus really nine members of that family die, uh, the mother, the father, one of the sons, uh, uh, the son's uh, uh, wife, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the, one of the brother that survived, his wife, who was pregnant, uh, uh, three of her five children, and, uh, you know, it's just nauseating. Like when, when you read down this list and you see these pictures, and you wonder, like, what in God's name could possibly have been so bad to do something like that? I mean, this this to me on a personal level, like on an individual level, is like 
Hitlerian in thought. You know, like who would contemplate doing something like that? You know, if you said to me, "There's a dog, there's a church full of dogs and cats. Go, go, shoot them all." I'd, I'd look at you like you were nuts. Let alone going in and doing it to, to human beings that you don't even know, which makes it even more insane. Uh, uh, I, I honest to God, I, I, I think like you know, after this and then last week in New York, you know, this this piece of shit from Uzbekistan who, you know, comes to this country, that's a gift. You've been given a gift to come to America and to come here and then apparently not find his American dream in a couple of years, besides that, you know, he's going to gravitate towards ISIS and, uh, you know, and commit this horrendous, uh, you know, running a truck and then turning onto a bike lane in, in downtown New York and mowing people down on their bikes. Again, people you don't even know. Uh, you know, we've all been pissed off at one point or, or another in our lives. When we, you know, we've probably thought, you know, in the back of our head, why I'd like to kill that son of a bitch. But people that have done something egregious to you, people you don't even know. And, you know, it's, uh, I think the thing from last week, you know, not to try to steer us to politics because these are two horrific tragedies, but, you know, for anybody, who says that extreme vetting by President Trump is wrong after what happened last week and how many of these things we've seen all around the country, you, you, you need to be fitted for a straitjacket and a rubber room. I mean, this is insane what we're doing, letting these people in. And you know, the worst part is this guy apparently was communicating uh, through emails and things with uh, ISIS. And now we know the NSA listens to every phone call read every email that somebody didn't put them on their radar and put him on a watch list or something or go and arrest his ass for even talking to these people. Uh, you know, we, we, Congress has got to get its act in gear uh, and figure out how we're going to confront this thing. So, you know, first of all, this guy's an American citizen, so not entitled to the constitutional rights you and I were born with. That's, that's number one. But, Secondly, you don't want to become like a banana republic and just start throwing people in jail because they're thinking something. But at some point, you know, like, you know, it, does it become material when you communicate with people that have stated that they want to kill uh, non-Muslims and mainly America, the great Satan, they call it. Uh, if I start communicating to people like that, and about you know entertaining a back and forth conversation does that not make me material to their terrorism and as such i would think throw his ass in jail throw his ass in guantanamo for all i care but don't let these pieces of shit these vermin these cockroaches into our country to then mow down innocent americans and 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 other people uh other groups you know the, the group of the five friends that came here to celebrate you know lifelong friendship you know, eight of them come and three of them go home without five of their friends. Just astounding. Absolutely astounding. Yeah. Terrible. It's, it's absolutely terrible. And not to overlook uh, what happened in Texas at all. I mean, that's now not the first time we've seen this happen in a church. You think, uh, you know, church uh, supposed to represent, you know, a very, uh, very just quiet and very uh, serene environment. You don't think that that's what's going to happen. But to kind of hit it closer to home, and it be in New York City, this is where I want to kind of uh, bring my partner here, 
John into the mix because I know John is in and out of New York City every day for work. And, I mean, I've worked in New York City, and I know what those uh, bike lanes are like. I know what Times Square looks like with the sitting areas that they change the basically uh, parts of the street to. But, John, you know, you traveling through New York and you seeing the amount of traffic flow, could you fathom witnessing that uh, and seeing that kind of carnage with the amount of people you see passing by your car on a daily basis in New York City? No, it's absolutely crazy. It's like, think about it. There's so many people. It kind of just becomes commonplace. So many people either going by on bikes or even walking or whatever, but it's a massive amount of people you see and to kind of put it through your head and think like, oh, I'm going to run into these people or I'm going to take this truck and, and cause some damage is nuts because they're literally, I mean, it could be, I mean, luckily the, the damage wasn't as much. Obviously, it's still a huge tragedy, but there are just so many people walking and biking uh, around the city it's crazy oh it's uh it's it's sickening because you think it's it's another thing you're just leaving work or like you said shane you know people who were there just on a you know kind of a friends reconnecting trip and before we kind of get into the events of today and it's going to dominate the rest of the show so just uh kind of bear with us here you know, Shane, when you see a truck like a Home Depot truck, and obviously that's free advertising now for Home Depot, but unfortunately being kind of uh, associated with a really devastating thing. Now, what kind of security measures do you think need to be taken for something as simple as a truck rental now? Because everybody, Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, any kind of home improvement store, even your local Ace Hardware could rent you a truck, but like this, these are now considered weapons of mass destruction to some folks. So what do you think like a, uh, some kind of business would have to do to kind of put this, the constraints on people renting these things now because they could turn them into, you know, a ticking time bomb. Yeah, no, no question. My understanding is that uh, the state of New York, <clears throat> excuse me, and the uh, New York uh, City Police had put out some months before this uh, directions, uh, you know, after the thing in, uh, in uh, France last year where the truck was used to mow down people at a, at a parade, uh, they put out directions to people running these types of uh, vehicles out to be on the lookout for suspicious-looking people, uh, you know, and, you know, you, you don't want to generalize, and, you know, you get into a real sticky situation, a real slippery situation. But I would seem to think that if you're running a van to somebody from Uzbekistan uh, with a name like uh, Saison, uh, you know, it, it would at least put a flag up that you'd at least start paying closer attention to this person. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that whoever rented that vehicle is probably going to get a few visits from, from authorities to figure out why there weren't more questions asked. Um, but, you know, in the reality of it, like, you know, they were talking about, again, mixing it back to the thing here in Texas. We could pass law after law. We could pass a million laws. And if I'm hell-bent on killing a bunch of people, I can damn well figure out a way to do it. If I have to go steal a car to do it uh, or a truck, um, you know, so there's there's only so much you can do. You can't safeguard the world against every possible uh, danger. But, again, when I go back and think about the NSA listening, you know, into all those, every phone call and email in the country, uh, quite possibly a vast portion of the world, that they're not aware of these types of conversations going on. And uh, I don't know if you guys heard it or not, the New York City police commissioner yesterday said, and it may have just been a comment that he wasn't thinking about what he was saying, but he said, we, we always knew something like this was going to happen, and now it has. 
So my initial thought was, as soon as I heard that, was, well, if you knew this could happen, why the hell weren't those cement blocks put up before? Uh, why weren't safeguards taken? Again, you know, some he would have struck somewhere else, but, you know, it's it's the kind of thing you have to ask yourself. In this day and age with the, the insanity that we're seeing, people using trucks, people using hatchets, uh, you know, uh, just people walking into churches and shooting people they don't know. You've got to be as forward-thinking as you possibly can. Prior to 9-11, None of us could envision somebody flying a plane into a building. And yet now, in, in our heads, that at least is, you know, a, a plausible thought where it was yeah. not before 9-11. You know, so now I think these authorities got to get off their ass, and I know they're working hard. Uh, but they've got to, you know, this hand-wringing over civil rights and racial profiling and whatever else, that's got to go out the window. Job number one is to keep the most amount of people safe as you can. If you've got to step on Troy Martin's toes or your guys' toes or somebody else's toes to get that done, uh, no harm, no foul. What's the worst? I was, you know, inconvenienced for a couple hours, you know, as opposed to eight people being mowed down by a truck. Uh, Pretty good, you know, uh, uh, pretty easy price to pay, I would think. To, to try to safeguard against that. So we've got to get out of this mindset of, you know, moral superiority and that we we're above that. And we can't, you know, when, when cockroaches invade your house, you don't sit there and try to reason with them and, and figure out a way to try to keep them cordoned off to a particular part of the house. You eradicate their ass, you fumigate and you eradicate them. And with this threat that we're now facing, you know, clearly, they're, you know, ISIS is not going to take on the U.S. military in any head-to-head combat. What they're going to do is they're going to continue to search out soft targets, be it a church, a, you know, a subway sandwich shop, a park, whatever. And that's what they're going to try to strike. So the people that are uh, commissioned with keeping us safe, they've got to get more forward thinking than these people. And if they've got to step on toes along the way, so be it. I would seem to think that the U.S. Supreme Court, which any of this would ultimately end up with, at, uh, thank God, at least with the conservative tilt that it has now, that if, you know, somebody, let's say this guy w- was arrested the day before he did this and sues the city of New York because he was wrong and racially profiled, that would eventually make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And let's hope that our Supreme Court that is also commissioned with keeping us safe would say to this guy, hey, listen, <laughs> you know, you were communicating with bad people and we held, we, you, know, we held you for a, a, a period of time, whatever that period of time may be, you know, go home or we can send you home to Uzbekistan if you want. But the craziest part about this whole thing to me, guys, is, you know, you guys know how much I, how closely I follow politics and public policy. Uh, this is what I, my educational background has been in. And so I've always been entranced by this. When I heard of this program that brought this guy into the country, this, uh, let me find the name of it here, the, uh, the Diversity Immigrant Visa Program, otherwise known as the Diversity Visa Lottery. Now, with something like letting foreigners come into our country, especially from places like Uzbekistan that has its own problems with terrorism. Uh, 
I would seem to think that we'd have a really high bar set to let these people. And what this program is is for a country like Uzbekistan that has a very low number of people that immigrate to uh, emigrate to uh, uh, the United States. Because the number is so low, they allow a certain number of people from that country to come here, and it's a lottery. So let's say they're allowing 1,000 people and 5,000 apply. Just roll the dice, and if you're one of the 1,000 that get picked, you get to come in. And to me, that's insane. Now, there's this thing that's back and forth. If you remember, President Trump tweeted out, you know, that this was uh, this baby, I mean, the program, uh, was one of Chuck Schumer's babies. Um, you, know, you know, the left came out of me and said, that's ridiculous. No, well, in fact, after doing extensive research, Charles Schumer was in the House of Representatives in 1990, pushed hard for this thing when the Democrats held control of Congress, pushed hard for it. It was signed into law. True, there were some Republicans that voted for it, and it was signed into law uh, by uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and, uh, you know, and, and became law. But in the intervening time, he's saying his, his report is that in 2010, he and a group of other people tried to put an end to it, and it didn't go through well. He wasn't a sponsor of that bill. He was, ha- he was Senate Majority Leader at that time. So his job as Senate Majority Leader would be to attach his name to this because it looks like it has a likelihood of passing. It looks like a good idea. Uh, so to say that somehow, you know, uh, uh, 20 years after he pushed for this program and got it signed into law, uh, that he was against it because he had come out in his role as Senate Majority Leader uh, supporting the people that did sponsor that bill hardly means that he was that he was against it. He was merely supporting the people in his party that were pushing uh, for that uh, rescinding. President Obama was, uh, Barack Obama was president at the time. It did not get signed into law. Um, but my question is, why, okay, so you push me. Let's, let's give Taz the benefit of the doubt. He worked like a motherfucker to get this thing pushed, and it didn't work. Uh, why did he drop it? Why didn't he bring it up six months later or the next year, and the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that, if he was so ardent in opposition for it, against it? Um, he didn't, which, which tells you exactly what I'm telling you is right. But as Senate Majority Leader at the time, he had to support it because his underlings, people below him, were uh, pushing for it, and when it didn't become law, you figure, well, I can scrub my hands of that now and say I gave it a try. You know, it's uh, my question is how many other people like this moron are in the country right now? And for anybody out there that says President Trump is a moron for one of the extreme betting, ask yourself what you would want if you were on that bike trail last week. Or your mother or father, brother, sister, son or daughter was on that bike trail last week. If, you know, it's time for us to get our our heads out of our asses as a country and realize the fight that we're in. Because so far, I don't believe we have. Yeah, no, you you hit the nail right on the head. Just uh, it's it, there's nothing else we could try to do to wrap our head around this situation and be rational because when it's an irrational. Uh, thought, especially with what we've seen, it's not uh, it's not getting any better. And definitely, we appreciate you sharing all that tonight. Um, 
and we had to talk about this. I know we had said at the end of last week, you know, we're going to go into November to remember, and unfortunately, so far, I hate to use this cliche here, but this has been a November to remember, and we're only five days in so far. Um, but if you don't mind, I think we're going to start to, we'll change gears here a little bit and start to, uh, we'll give them what we thought we'd have going uh, fresh off the top without two atrocities <laughs> kind of getting in the way. So we're going to have yeah. a fun little show here, and unfortunately, you know, we can't just guarantee that kind of stuff anymore. <laughs> Apparently, but let, let's see if we can lighten things up a little bit and talk about uh, something a little bit closer to home and, and uh, maybe take, take people's minds off of uh, both of <laughs> Yes, we're going to switch things up a little bit here, and we're going to give all the credit in the world to the research of our co-host, John, as he put together a retrospective episode here for November to Remember 1997. Now, if you listen to the NWA title tournament retrospective episode we did, we kind of broke it down in terms of the uh, lead-up, the matches on the show, what was going on backstage, what was going on with you, what was going on. Throughout the whole company, but we're going to uh, focus on November to Remember 97, a show that you know very, very well. So, here we go. It is November to Remember 1997 at the Golden Dome. And how would you say it, Shane? Is it Monaca, Pennsylvania? Monaca. Monaca, Pennsylvania. Monaca, Pennsylvania. It was November 30th, 1997. This is a live pay-per-view, and the play-by-play was done by the amazing Joey Styles. This was the first November to remember to be broadcasted on pay-per-view. The attendance was uh, 4,634, but rumored to be closer to 5,000. And this show is considered to be in your hometown. And this show is built around the franchise, Shane Douglas, reclaiming the World Heavyweight Championship. So the first question would be, Shane, as this show was being brought together and put together, how how much did you have to do with the actual promotion and putting together of November to Remember '97? Well, that's what made that that show a, a monster, a bear to me because I was the promoter of the show uh, along with Cody Michaels. Uh, the two of us promoted the entire thing. Uh, we, Paul gave us a you know a fairly substantial budget for ECW. Um, you know, a typical budget for advertising was usually in the Three to five thousand dollar range. I think we had closer to twenty for November to remember. Uh, the number forty six, whatever it was, you said that was the, the building code, uh, the fire code uh, capacity. Uh, it was actually a little over five thousand. Uh, we paid off the fire, uh, uh, the fire marshal. Uh, and I'll deny that if anybody ever asked me. Uh, I don't want to get the guy in trouble, but uh, but we ended up also turning away. I'm guessing two to 3,000 people because once the building was full, uh, Ronnie Lang, head of Atlas Security, came and got me. And we walked around the backside of the building and looked, and there was a line of people, five or six people wide, wrapped two, half, halfway to two-thirds of the way around the building, up the side, up the stairs, and about halfway across the parking lot. And, you know, in this business, you get pretty good at judging crowds, and I would say that was easily... Uh, over 2,000 and maybe approaching 3,000 people that were turned away. Yeah, and that's that, that's a huge amount to, to witness a show like November to Remember. And as an ECW fan, November to Remember carried a lot of weight because basically was ECW's super card of the year. And every time you heard Paul Heyman and the Paulie Dangerously voice tell you that, 
if you missed November to remember, it was regret. You'll never forget. You literally had that ingrained in your brain as you waited for this show every single year because you never knew what was going to happen. And the prior year obviously had a huge, huge main event with Terry Funk and Tommy Dreamer teaming up against somebody. I can't remember uh, off the top of my head. seems to be a little uh, <laughs> scarce at this time. But but 97 specifically, and that's why I don't want to I don't want to trail off because I could start naming off all the other parts of all the past November members. But this show, being the first time you guys are bringing November to Remember to pay per view, was there pressure uh, not only from you promoting it but from the show itself living up to the expectation it had built over time, not being on pay per view and only being on hardcore TV and purchasing it through ECW Home Video. Yeah, no question. You know, on both fronts because. As one half of the main event, you know, you've got the pressure of delivering, and not just delivering because of pay-per-view, but also this was a major show, of course, a pay-per-view in front of my hometown, my family, my friends, uh, you know, people I'd grown up with, and, you know, so there was a ton of pressure on that front, and, you know, I I, I knew that Bam Bam was going to be able to deliver. Uh, I had never been, that was probably the biggest match of my career up to that point. Uh, as a main event, as the main event guy, uh, that the show is being built around. Or if, I, you know, if you go out there and drop the ball, uh, you're going to have a whole lot of egg on your face. And so there was a lot of pressure for that. But also on the promotional side, because you know, we certainly don't want to bring our, our, uh, you know, our Super Bowl to, to air on pay-per-view to the world and have a building half full or half empty. Because that would look like WWE now. Uh, I had to get that jab in there. You know that. Uh, but, you know, it's, um, it, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was a big, big deal. The thing about ECW was, you know, we didn't have an analytics department. You know, we barely had a promotions department. So we weren't able to sit back and say, okay, how many tickets exactly do we have sold today? How many do we have left? Uh, how many tomorrow, the day after that? It was just sort of a scattershot thing. And you could occasionally contact Ticketmaster and they would give, you know, get back to the day or so and give you like a general feedback as to how many tickets they had sold. But we also sold hundreds, if not thousands of tickets to the box office, you know, so it was always a running tab. You never really knew. We did know that we were going to have a hell of a house. We didn't know that it was going to be that big of a house. You know, my guess would have been probably, like in the 3,500 range is what we were hoping for. And 3,500 in the Golden Dome, the building's amenable, meaning that the, the bleachers moved. So had we sold only 3,500 and still had another 1,100 tickets basically to sell to a, to a, a building capacity, you know, we could have moved those bleachers in and with some camera magic made it look like a really full building. Uh, thankfully, we didn't have to do that. You know, we got there that day. Uh, I just remember being extremely hectic because <clears throat> with a crowd that size comes a lot of responsibilities to that. That's a shitload of hot dogs you have to have ready, a shitload of bottles of water and soda and ice, and people demand those positions and everything else. So it was a, it became a logistical nightmare on top of everything else. This show is, is so interesting when you look at the players involved. And obviously, you know, with yourself, with, uh, you know, RVD, Tommy Dreamer, Sabu, Sandman, I would say with the exclusion of Raven being in WCW at the time, it was probably 
every ECW mainstay and everybody that we identify ECW with on the show, the Dudley Boys, New Jack, uh, uh, Just Incredible, uh, Stevie Richards. There's so many guys that were identifiable with ECW on the show, with the exclusion of Raven. So did you feel, as the promoter of the show, that you had the best roster or the best collection of your ECW compadres that you possibly could have? Well, I knew we were stacked. You know, keep in mind, you know, Lance Storm had now gotten in and was, uh, you know, pushing up the ladder. Uh, you know, uh, Paul was, you know, getting him involved. Uh, you know, first with the triple threat, later with the impact players. Um, you know, so, uh, Jerry Lynn. You know, it was a really stacked show. At the time, I didn't think of that. I'll be honest with you, uh, from probably around 94 on, uh, in my head, I believe we had the best dressing room in the business anyway. And that sounds a bit pretentious because, you know, WCW and WWF at the time were pretty loaded too. But I was working with these guys uh, every weekend, and I saw how hard they were working. And I, you've often heard me say it in interviews, I never saw anybody half-ass it in ECW, and that's legitimate. That's a straight shoot. I never saw anybody lazy. I often saw people lazy and half-assed in the other companies. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, especially as the, the franchise player for the company, supposedly, uh, you know, to me, you know, I, 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 even back then I used to think to myself, man, what a great position, you know, to, to be the mouthpiece for this dressing room. Um, you know, you, you knew that every time somebody went to the ring, they were going to deliver, and even on the nights that they didn't deliver a five-star, you know, the intensity was there. You know, so it wasn't, you know, you never got the feeling like, uh, tonight was a down night. You know, the shows always had a feel. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't mean to say that every match was perfect and every angle was great. Uh, there were a lot of nights that things didn't. But, you know, on the over and under, my general recollection of ECW is, leaving to go home for the week uh, after the weekend and thinking that was a couple more great shows. Um, I don't ever remember going home and thinking like, uh, that was a shit weekend. And I, that was never something I thought of when I was going home. And that was by and large because of not we had that dressing room. Now, when you're the promoter of the show and, and you know, there's so much, weight being put on your shoulder and things like that. When you get a house like that, where it's 4,600 people, but in reality, it's closer to 5,000. You know what I mean? It's like you said, with the paying off the fire department and things like that. Do you get the credit for that? Does, does Heyman say anything to you? Like like what's kind of the, the backstage look on, on Shane, the promoter? Well, we, you know, about halfway through the day, it was getting, so hectic for me because it's like Scott and I were trying to sit and talk about the match. Uh, you know, my, my concession manager would come over and say, uh, Shane, we're running low on ice. And then 20 minutes later, Shane, we're almost out of hot dogs. Uh, Shane, we need more nacho chips. So we need more of this. We need more of that. Uh, security was saying, we don't have room for more people. We don't know where to put more people. There were all these things coming to me and my co-promoter, bless his heart, Cody Michaels, uh, said, you know, why don't you and Bammer, you know, go out to, to uh, Sabu's Winnebago, his, his, his trailer, and uh, I'll take care of everything here. And so he took on everything from that point forward in the building of the actual running of the, uh, you know, physical show. 
And Scott and I went out to the Winnebago, to Sabu's Winnebago, and closed the curtains. And we, the, the odd thing was, and we just talked about this this past weekend, me and Franny, we didn't talk about the match. You know, we didn't really say, like, okay, let's start the match. I'm going to do something like this or maybe use this as a spot to go into the heat. We didn't talk about that. We just sat around and bullshitted. And I think it calmed both of us down and got, a, got our heads right. Um, look, I, I knew Scott was going to be able to deliver. You know, he had been in that position before, having been on WrestleMania and, you know, several other high-profile pay-per-views. And I'd been on, you know, on many pay-per-views. So it wasn't like it was anything nerve-wracking to either of us. And we sat around, you know, like two, like we were two best friends, just bullshitting. And and uh, we did uh, prior to that day talk about, what, you know, what we would use as a roadmap for the match. The template for our match was the uh, Vader Flair 1990 match in Charlotte. Uh, I was there that night and watched it, and you know I remember the hairs on my arm standing up watching it. It was just a really incredible match, and the two of us. You know, me and Bam Bam lined up pretty closely to Flair and Vader. You know, the big, the big monster chewing up the, 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 you know, the wrestling technician, big mouth, whatever. And uh, you know, so we used that. And you know, the only real direction, you know, we said going to the match was no matter what I come firing with, you just keep cutting me off, keep cutting me off, keep cutting me off. And I knew Scott was professional enough and damn good enough to know how much to give me, let the crowd get excited before he would cut me off. So I didn't have to say to him, Scott, you know, let, you know, let me get you really going and get to this point, And then at that point, cut me off. I knew that he'd have it instinctively. And he did. Um, the thing, when we were out in the Winnebago for several hours before the match, uh, right before the show started, we decided to go back in and get dressed and, you know, get, you know, get started. And, you know, the show was getting ready to start. We walked back in. This is after being in, in, in Sabu's Winnebago for a couple hours. And when I walked in, very uncharacteristically, you know, Paul was, you know, usually pretty professional at the building, you know, A to B to C to D. Uh, when I walked in, he came over and he gave me a great big bear hug and picked me up off my feet. And when he put me down, he, he planted a big kiss on my cheek. <laughs> I said, okay, what was that for? He said, did you see it out there yet? And I said, no, remember, we've been in the Winnebago for a couple hours. So he pulled me by the arm and took me upstairs to the, uh, to the deck, which is where we shot from. We had it curtained off so the boys could stand up there and watch the show live. We got up there, and he pulled the curtain and cracked the curtain open. And I looked out, and I remember thinking to myself, it looked like a bowl of ants. Like, you didn't see any of the building. It was just heads and bodies, and they were, you know, they were throwing beach balls around. It was like a rock concert. You know, the people that were there, they were excited. They were getting, they were dying for the show to start. And they were having a great time until then. You know, and when you have that kind of chemistry in the building, you can see that as long as you deliver the goods, you're going to succeed. So at that point, I got excited. I couldn't wait to get out there, you know, because I knew being the hometown guy and so many people in the building, pretty much everybody in the building knew me, uh, either personally or indirectly. Uh, several of my students that I had taught were there uh, just a few years earlier. And, you know, so I, I, there, I had no nerves whatsoever going out. I was excited to go out in large part because I was wrestling Bam Bam, but also an almost equal amount uh, of purpose was that I was in front of my hometown and uh, I didn't feel pressure of that at that point. Up to the show I did, but once we got to the building and once I saw that crowd, 
you know, as a, as performers, you see a crowd like that, you want to get out in front of that crowd and, and ply your trade. And, uh, you know, so from then forward, it, it was pretty straightforward. There, there's a, one little side note of something just popped into my head. We, as we went upstairs there to look out the curtain, Ben and Pam went to sit down on a couch. Uh, they have, you know, it's like up in this deck in the uh, Golden Dome. That's where they have like a workout area and, you know, sort of like, a, like they have TVs and stuff set for the students at the college to sort of leisurely hang out at their ping pong tables and things like that. And uh, Bam Bam sat on the couch, and the couch broke in half. <laughs> he sat down and snapped right in half, and, uh, you know, he just, just had that, like, that, you know, sort of like red-faced embarrassed look, you know, like, you know, God damn it, I broke another couch. <laughs> but uh, it was an exciting night. It was a good night. That was definitely a prelude to uh, what happened in the main event, him going through something and uh, breaking some stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I never loved it that way, but. You know, there there was one thing once we got into the match, uh, I you know, if you haven't noticed it, uh, pay attention to the next time you watch that match. The build, keep in mind the building back then, you know, we didn't have high def cameras and uh, red cameras and things like that. Then we had to light the place up like the sun to be able to televise it. And, you know, so we had four light stanchions and I forget how many thousands of watts those lights were. Uh, that building had no AC. It does now. It just recently, like in the last couple of years, got air conditioning. But even being November 30th, uh, you know, with 5,000-plus people in that building, plus all the personnel working and uh, the TV lights and, you know, the doors were all closed, obviously, because, you know, uh, college was in session and, you know, we didn't want people just looking in the doors to get a free show. Uh, it was extraordinarily hot in the, in the uh, Golden Dome that night. Uh, probably 115, 120 degrees, very, very warm. When you get that many people into that enclosed of a space, you know, everybody breathing out, that's hot, wet, moist air. And uh, I just remember being really, like, heavy, like thick, you know, in, in the ring. Bam Bam had slimmed down at that point about 460 pounds, uh, slimmed down to that. And I was 253 pounds at the time. And uh, for about the first 15, 20 minutes of the match, he throws me around like a rag doll. And at that point, he presses me over his head and throws me out of security in the outway, you know, a good 10, 15 feet out. He then walks back to face the hard cam. He puts his elbows on the top rope, and he looks dead set into the hard cam. Watch that the next time when he does that, how he's barely breathing. He's barely even sweating. And to me, that just stuck out. It always has. Every time I watch that match, that just grabs me. But this big bastard, uh, you know, throwing me around in that thick, hot, sweaty air. And he's breathing like that. And, you know, it looks like he just got up from watching a TV show. And, uh, you know, just another testament to to Scott's uh, in-ring ability, you know, that he was able to keep himself at that size, that well-winded, and, uh, you know, and, and, and keep, you know, keep himself under control. You know, because in that kind of a match, you let the nerves start to get to you during the match. You know, am I, am I doing the right thing? You know, what else can we do? And your brain's going a million miles an hour. And, uh, you know, that all, adding all the other physical aspects of the heat and humidity, uh, the crowd, uh, you know, and how do you make this match get to the point you need to get it to? 
he is totally calm, cool, collected, uh, the absolute definition of professional. Now, I definitely want to get into that match and kind of the build-up to the match, but i got to ask this, because ECW obviously is different than so many other promotions. Obviously, of course, WWF, who Vince is obviously the promoter, and, and WCW, who, you know, at the time, Bischoff was basically, you know, the executive president or executive vice president and promoter. How come in ECW you see yourself will be a promoter for a show? Um, maybe in New York you might see Taz being a promoter. How come that kind of stuff happened in ECW where Paul wasn't the promoter of every show? The main reason being that we were on location. So I would promote in the areas that I was in, like Pittsburgh, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, Johnstown, Cleveland, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, the areas that were fairly close to me, Bubba Ray would do the, the towns in New York and uh, some New Jersey towns. We had another guy, uh, Dan, uh, that would do some of the other towns in New Jersey. Uh, in Florida, it was Pam Betts, you know, so that, you know, we had different uh, different people around the country. But the biggest reason is, is ECW, you know, people use the term grassroots. ECW was as grassroots a company that I'd ever worked for uh, that, that excelled to that level because we didn't have a billion-dollar corporation, a Panda Energy or a Time Warner behind us. Uh, we literally were, every three weeks, the arena show was our lifeblood. Had any time along that seven-year journey, the ECW Arena show not sold out uh, or not been a uh, home run show, it's quite likely we wouldn't have survived the next month. You know, so we had to deliver. There was always that that pressure in the back of your head. Not it wasn't pressure, but that thought in the back of your head that we, you know, we we've got to hit the home run tonight. You know, it's like going to the World Series and saying, okay. I'm up bad. I got to hit a home run. A triple's not good enough. A home run's the only thing to work. And you know, so there was a, a bit of pressure with that. But you know, again, it, it seemed like the dressing room just always sort of fell in with that and lived up to that expectation and delivered the goods. You know, Paul was more of a hands-off booker in the sense that he would handle the storylines, the general, uh, you know, inception of the storyline. You know where the storyline would you know meander, but you know after a, you know one or two matches, like let's say it's me and Taz or me and Bam Bam, you know after that first maybe first and second match, you know pretty much what we've done in the ring starts to steer the angle and the storyline. Paul may add something in or ask us to shy away from something else because of some thought he had, but he was more hands off Booker that way. He you know he he did give us a wide latitude. I think that was the brilliance of Paul Heyman as a booker. He didn't micromanage. He didn't try to make us read off a teleprompter uh, or set our matches up beforehand and run by Taz or somebody else. Uh, he gave us that leeway, and that, at least from my own perspective, I'm sure for everybody else thinking the same way, that made it mine. You know, So instead of being told what I'm going to do, uh, I'm being given an opportunity and a platform. I don't want to go out and shit to bed. Uh, you know, or, or strike out. So, you know, because you were in charge of steering that, uh, and that particular part of the show was yours, you know, you bought into it a lot more. You know, it wasn't you were delivering somebody else's goods, you were delivering your goods. And so uh, from an actual promotional standpoint, the fact that Paul was so hands-off on the booking, Paul certainly wasn't going to get involved 
in the day-to-day, you know, calling Ticketmaster in Pittsburgh or Cleveland or, or calling the arenas and, you know, going and signing the contracts and everything else. Paul was busy enough with, with putting the show together. You know, it's the fact, you know, you, you look and you see what we did with the crew that we had. Um, we all wore multiple hats. You know, you know, Taz was running the House of Hardcore uh, uh, training school. Uh, we were, he was also doing the merchandising and uh, creating a lot of the T-shirt designs. Uh, you know, me and Bubba were out promoting, uh, plus working, um, you know, and, and wearing other hats. You know, I would also, on a week-to-week basis, you know, I would get the show sent to me, and, you know, I would – you know, Paul would, you know, just say, in general, where do you see the next step of the angle going? And I would watch and I'd say, well, I think it should go here or there or wherever and explain my reasoning, my psychology to it. And, you know, so we all wore these multiple hats. Raven was given input on booking. Terry Funk, I know, was. Tommy Dreamer was wearing a bunch of hats. You know, he was like Paul's assistant. And so we were all doing multiple things because he had to. He couldn't afford to go out and hire uh promoters in, in all the areas and we couldn't afford to hire, you know, Paul, a, a real assistant, you know, to work with him just on, you know, that, uh, we couldn't afford to hire a, 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 a merchandising company to come up with the t-shirt designs and order them and get them stocked and get that merchandise to the buildings and back. Uh, so we all took that on, you know, it really was, everybody in the company was all in. He had to be. When you're the promoter of the show and you're doing all this extra stuff, does he ever come to you and say, you know, hey, since you're kind of doing that, help me book the show? Like, let's say, like, Bubba, does Bubba help book the show in in New York or maybe sometimes in New Jersey? Do you actually help book the shows in, in like, the Pittsburgh area and for November to remember? Or not really? It was just kind of um, people stood within their own roles. Yeah, no. That that was – the booking was pretty much Paul's uh, Paul's purview. Um, you know, I, I would say I would never be so pretentious as to go to him and say, "Hey, Paul, Tommy and uh, Raven are wrestling tonight, and I'm thinking for Pittsburgh they should do this or that." I would uh, that's that that would be onerous of me to do that, and I think sticking my nose in his business. Uh, you know, we all had confidence in Paul in that way because he, we knew he had confidence in us. You know, so it's like a two way street. Um, now I would on my match, you know, I might go to Paul and say, Hey, I'm thinking something like this or, you know, whatever, um, you know, coming up with a finish, you know, I, you know, Scott and I created the finish of that match. Uh, Paul didn't give it to us. The only thing Paul would say to us is I, you know, I want Shane up or I want him up strong or I want him up, you know, uh, in a cell, uh, whatever. Uh, he would give us a very general, uh, destination and it was up to us to get it there. Now, the show is being built, obviously, around the ECW title rematch of you trying to get the title back from Bam Bam. But leading into the show, Rick Rude did play a major role in the storyline and a major role in building up the pay-per-view. I know we've talked about Rick Rude before in the show, but did you like that whole storyline with Rude kind of, uh, you know, putting his nose into it and getting involved with you? Did you kind of like the rub that Rick Rude was giving you? Absolutely. I've, I've always been a big mark for Rick Rude's work. I thought it was a, a, an incredible heel. And, uh, you know, so to have him there, you know, when he first came in and he, you know, he said, well, I'm here to fuck with the franchise. Well, that's what the franchise needed. 
you know, I, I was going to Paul for some time before that, and it felt like it was getting a bit stale. You know, like just every you know week going out and running Flare down, and you know by then people knew Flare wasn't coming. Uh, you know, I kept going to Paul and said, "Give me some 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 something more. I need some more parameters to the character." You know, it was getting stale for me, just going out and doing the same thing week after week. And when he brought Root in, the first day he brought, he kept telling me, you know, I've got you know I've got a big surprise coming. Got to be. He never told us. He, I don't know if Tom or anybody else knew. I didn't know. And when he walked in, he had a great big trench coat, tweed trench coat on, and a uh, motorcycle helmet uh, that covered his face. And other than him being a tall son of a bitch, you really couldn't tell you know, that typical Rick uh, Rude lean muscular physique because he had that big jacket on. He's like a big tall guy, and you know, uh, you know that helmet on. You know, Rick was around six three, six four, I believe, and uh, with that helmet on, he looked like six six, maybe six seven. You know, he's just a big, impressive specimen. And I kept looking all day because he never took it off. And I kept watching him move around. And he kept his hands in his pockets the whole time. I had no idea until the reveal when when he reveals to the fans is when I found out who it was. And you know, the whole storyline, you know, of him fucking with the franchise, and then later coming up with opponents to challenge them. Uh, which I thought was brilliant on Paul's part. And it was a perfect uh, position for Rick Rude to be in. You know, since he couldn't work after hurting his neck in the uh, in the New Japan match uh, with Sting. Uh, I remember when Sting did the dive and he thought he was on a flat surface there, actually on like an elevated area. And because of the lights over there in Japan, uh, when he took the cross body from Sting, he thought he was taking a flat bump. And when he went back, the floor wasn't there. It was like 12, 15 inches below. And so he ended up landing on his, on his head. And uh, I don't know if he broke his neck or I know he did a lot of damage to that over the break or what, but uh, ended his career. And Rick Root, I, I do know that at the end there in ECW, Rick was frustrated. You know, and you can see why. The energy in those ECW buildings is incredible. And for a performer, an elite performer uh, like Rick Root, to be in those buildings and watching uh, it must have been hard to not be able to get involved, you know, do what, what you'd love to do. And, you know, he was still a fairly young guy, still in incredible shape and yet, you know, couldn't go. So he was sort of relegated to a sideline rule. And there, there were some uh, clues and hints that, you know, uh, you know, that Rick wasn't all quite there. I just chucked it up to, you know, being thrown around for all those years and everything else. And, you know, at that time in the business, it sounds sort of trite and, and, uh, uh, you know, like you're trying to like lessen what you're saying. And I'm not, but at that time in the industry there, you know, drugs were so prevalent, uh, not only in the ECW dressing room and every dressing room I was ever in. You know, the first, when I first went on the road in 1984 uh, to do jobs in WWF, I remember guys open in the middle of the, the dressing area, snorting cocaine off their finger, you know, off the back of their hand and stuff. You know, I'd never seen anybody snort cocaine in my – I'd never seen cocaine in my life at that point. You know, so drugs were always around the business, but I had never seen Rick Rude do anything more than drink. You know, now, to be fair, I didn't hang around with Rick Rude all the time. You know, you like, might like say, like, Bam Bam or 
uh, Chris Candido and I would do, whether it was in WWF, WCW, or ECW. Um, but, you know, I knew Rick liked to drink beer and maybe a couple shots now and then, but I never was aware of him doing anything else. But in hindsight, looking back and, and knowing, you know, what ultimately led to Rick's demise, uh, there were clues and hints at that time. For example, uh, you know, Pitbull, number one, you know, always trusted me. We always had great matches, in large part because he trusted me. And there was one night in Trenton, New Jersey, at the CYO. Uh, he kept coming back to me and saying, you know, yeah, that, that one spot you want to do, uh, you, know, you, you think that spot's okay? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I explained to him the psychology of a particular spot. And he'd go, okay, and he'd leave. And five, ten minutes later, he'd come back and go, yeah, I, I don't know, Sam. I'm just saying, like, it doesn't feel right to me. And he had never done that before. I'd never seen that from Anthony Durante before. And this went on four or five times. And I finally followed him the last time when he, after he left my dressing room. Because as soon as I'd give him my explanation, he'd go, oh, okay, and he'd leave. And the last time he did, I followed him. And he went into a room and closed the door, you know, but left it cracked. And I heard Rick telling him, uh, he's fucking you. I wouldn't do that spot. A great heel wouldn't do that spot. He's making you look stupid. And, and I remember I called Rick aside that night. We went out to eat at, at the, uh, the Kowloon restaurant up in Boston. And I pulled him aside and I said, you know, why, what are you doing? And he said, well, I, I think you're a shitty heel. I said, okay, wh- why am I a shitty heel? He said, because you're a baby face in Pittsburgh. Great heels always have more heat in their hometown than that. And I, you know, and he's right, you know, in general, in the history of the business, that typically was the rule. But ECW was the inverse universe, and, and we were doing something different in ECW, and it was working. And, uh, but it just, it reeked to me of something more. A, his frustration at not being able to get back in the ring. And B, if he can't get back in the ring, then he'll take a leadership role by telling the guys that are working with the top guy that... I'm somehow manipulating them or, you know, using them or whatever. And I don't think Rick meant it in a bad way. I don't think he was trying to fuck me in any way. I just think that was Rick's frustration and not being able to get it in there himself. And my God, I wish he would have been able to get in there because it would have been phenomenal for ECW. Well, what is it like wrestling in front of the hometown? But in this instance, it's weird because you're so used to playing that heel. Everybody hated you. Everyone thought you were an asshole. So what was it like playing the baby face, especially at November to remember 97 against Bigelow after being that big, bad heel for so long? Well, in Pittsburgh, it was actually easy because, remember, these people all knew me, and they knew I was an asshole. So it worked, it worked out fine for that. No, in, in all seriousness, Pittsburgh, um, you, know, it, it, you know, there's a long lineage of wrestling in Pittsburgh, of course, with Bruno Sammartino but also the fact that Dominic Benucci lived here since 1969, uh, Larry Zabisco, um, you know, now suddenly here's the, the guy that's in this new upstart company that everybody's talking about, and he's a Pittsburgh boy. And Pittsburghers, as you know, with the Steelers and, you know, with, you know in the rare occasion when the Pirates do well or the Penguins, uh, it seems to be a pretty uh, – uh, common thing these days. Uh, Pittsburgh's a sports town. And when I was a kid, before the Penguins got good, the top three sports 
were the Steelers, the Pirates, and wrestling, Bruno San Martino. So it's a part of the sports lineage in Pittsburgh. So suddenly you've got another world champion from Pittsburgh is the hometown guy. And at that time, you know, because of the way, you know, with reality television and everything else that was going on, uh, you know, and, and, you know, society in general was getting more risque and pushing the envelope. So not only do you have the world champion from Pittsburgh, but he's a loud mouth, big mouth asshole. And he's representing Pittsburgh, you know, wearing black and gold and, you know, talking about the black and gold and occasionally throwing the Steelers and the Penguins and, uh, you know, the city of champions. <clears throat> you know, I, I, we often joked about it. You know, the joke in the dressing room was I could go out and rape an 80-year-old woman and they'd still cheer for me. Um, that's just how it was in Pittsburgh. You know, and, and I think from a creative process for Paul, it allowed him some creative outlets that he couldn't do elsewhere. Uh, I was a big fan of comic books when I was a kid. Marvel Comics used to have a, a series called What If? You know, what if Peter Parker hadn't been bitten by the radioactive spider? Or what if Captain America hadn't been given the, the uh, super soldier serum? Um, and, it, and it created storylines that couldn't be done as the general myth of those superheroes uh, was laid out in, in the comic books. And, you know, the inverse universe. And in ECW, Pittsburgh was that for Paul. So he could write matches and book matches in Pittsburgh that he couldn't do or wouldn't do anywhere else. And they would work in Pittsburgh. And so I think from a creative standpoint, from a booker, you know, it's, it's real easy on any creative endeavor to, to, to lose your juices. You know, it's doing the same thing week after week after week. But suddenly, you know, there was always Pittsburgh on the horizon once we started running and, and getting over strong here in Pittsburgh, that Paul could look and say, okay, now let's shake things up a little bit. Let's book with shame with some, like Masato Tanaka, uh, which is one of the matches I had here in Pittsburgh uh, at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center. So let's do stuff that we couldn't do elsewhere and, or may not work elsewhere, but we know it would work in Pittsburgh. It's kind of a cool approach or a different approach as far as booking you can almost switch the you know the top guy almost you in this instance are about to be the top guy again you can kind of switch from heel to babyface. was that um something that you always kind of enjoyed about pittsburgh or is that something you just thought like that's the way the wrestling business is going you're or did you just think that was really specific to that area at that time, it was specific to Pittsburgh. Um, now, keep in mind, if you go back and watch my matches, uh, I didn't really wrestle any any differently. Uh, you know, I, I still went out and performed the same way and did the same stuff. But in Pittsburgh, it got over as opposed to getting booed. Um, you know, obviously there was a there was a Pittsburgh versus Philadelphia tilt, much like the Pittsburgh or Philadelphia versus New York uh, madhouse of extreme. You know, so there were a lot of different things that went into that. And, uh, you know, a lot of different uh, ingredients that went into that recipe. But, it, you know, we didn't wrestle any differently. I, I, like, for instance, if I was wrestling Terry Funk in Pittsburgh, I didn't go out and babyface and start messing my hair up and hitting the mat and, you know, throwing fire around, uh, you, know, you know, blowing fires, we'd say, in the business. Uh, or Funk didn't go out there and, you know, you know, play the big mouth heel. You know, Terry Funk went out and played Terry Funk. And Shane Douglas went out and was Shane Douglas. And it 
it worked in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, and it always made for some creative television, you know, coming in and out of there. And I, and Paul was obviously smart enough to know that at that point in my career, having been on national television for quite some time and having been beaten the month before in the Madhouse of Extreme by Bam Bam Bigelow at Rick Rude's urging, uh, all the ingredients were in place. You know, we had Francine out there. We had uh, uh, Candido and uh, Lance Storm on deck to, to come out at the end of the match. You know, we had all the, all the ducks lined up in a row. You know, all we had to do now was go out and deliver. And, you know, to me, I still get goosebumps whenever I watch uh, when I hit him with the, you know, with the belly to belly uh, when he tries to put me through the table and uh, the, the place pop. You know, it's uh, it's on par with any pop of any other company. It's on par with uh, any pop in ECW, uh, and it worked. You know, that, that pop at the end wasn't canned or contrived. That was the fans exploding out of excitement. And when you see that, that's when you know the show worked. Now, Bam Bam beats you, obviously, October 16th of 97, about a month and a half before the rematch. So, he wins the world title. Obviously, Rick Rude played a big part of that storyline-wise. Yeah. He would go on to beat you in two other rematches. One was a house show in Delaware. Another was at Ultimate Jeopardy 97 at the ECW Arena. Were those matches kind of to get you guys ready for the, the pay-per-view as far as you guys were building matches together? Or, or were those that was just something, you know, on, on the road to the show, you were just going to have a couple matches? Well, on, on two ends, it made perfect sense. On, on the end of uh, getting ready for the Golden Dome, yeah, it would give us time to be in the ring together you know, because Scott and I worked together but as partners. So it was never in opposition to each other. And every wrestler has a different timing, a different feel, different movement. Uh, so, you know, you have to have some time. Like Ricky Steamboat always talks about, you know, how, how many times he and Randy uh, Savage worked leading up to WrestleMania three. And we remember the classic they got there. So, you know, Paul, I'm sure, booked it from the standpoint of giving us time to get familiar with each other in the ring on a, you know, opponent versus opponent level. But on the flip side of it, it also then really sold it going into, into Pittsburgh. You know, Shane Douglas didn't just get beat by this guy. He's been beaten repeatedly by this guy and, and has not been able to put a dent in on him. So it really was the underdog going in here against the monster, and, you know, Paul, if you remember leading into the Golden Dome show, you know, Paul and Joey Styles on the show would talk quite often. You know, this past Saturday night in Delaware, you know, the franchise, Shane Douglas was defeated again by the beast from the East, you know, and it just made it look like, well, Shane's had his time and they're moving on to Bam Bam as champion and moving forward. You have to always be able to swerve the crowd. If you can't swerve the crowd, the crowd knows where you're going to go. And let's face it on paper, sitting here today and looking back, me getting the belt back in Pittsburgh was as obvious as the nose on my face. But because of those things, because of me getting beaten repeatedly by Bam Bam and getting beaten so resoundly in that first match in the uh, Madhouse of Extreme in Queens, it looked as though it was a passing of a torch. And now they're just running it out and, you know, sucking all that's left in that angle out before they'll put shame with somebody else and put Bam Bam, somebody else chasing Bam Bam's belt. It was brilliant booking on Paul's part. When that all goes down, as far as uh, Bam Bam winning the title, 
how far in advance do you know the the basically the curve of the storyline from when Paul is kind of putting this together? Like, all right, Rick Rude's going to come, bam, bam, but then this is all going to lead to the big Golden Dome show where you're going to win the title back in your hometown. How much in advance does Paul kind of give you the, you know, the idea that that this is kind of the storyline arc of, of where he's going to go with the story? Well, Paul, you know, Paul showed me a great amount of respect and told me from the beginning. I knew the night in Queens where we were supposed to be going. But remember, I was also told at the Taz angle that I would be going over in that one, and after backpedaling for a year, didn't. So you know, I had a pretty good idea. And, and, and again, looking at it from just a booking standpoint, it made perfect sense. You know, he's, he's beating me. He's going to continue to beat me, going around the loop until we get back to Pittsburgh, and then, uh, you know, get it back there. Paul would have been foolish to try to go another direction. Not Nothing against Bam Bam at that point. But you know, uh, had he beaten me there that night in Pittsburgh, I think it could have had a real negative effect on the house in Pittsburgh, depending on how he beat me. If he, you know, if he was gone, had Bam Bam meet me up and, and, and pin me and, you know, genuinely pass the torch, I think it would have been detrimental to Pittsburgh, you know, but that, you know, uh, that, that, you know, Paul was much smarter than that. And, you know, so I knew, to answer your question, I knew from the get-go where we're going and so did Scott. You know, which, I, again, just underscores his professionalism. Uh, he never got a boo-boo face, or, you know, like I say in the business, or, you know, oh, you know I'm going to lose the shame now. I've only had it for a month or a month and a half or whatever. It was a business to Scott. He was an uber professional. And, uh, you know, we were great friends on top of it. So all around, I look back at that whole angle and, you know, from start to finish, and then what he did with the triple threat afterwards – uh, as being, you know, all good. There was there was no nothing bad to it other than he and I both ending up in a hospital afterwards. You know, I was in the hospital for three days. I think Scott was in the hospital for five days afterwards, pissing blood. Wow, all from the injuries that were withstood from the match? No, not mine was my elbow. Uh, I knew going into the match that I had to have surgery after. But when Scott hit me with a crutch... It, it snapped and came down and did hit me and, and aggravated the injury. And Scott, uh, because of his uh, sugar diabetes, uh, diabetes, um, his uh, pancreas and things were, uh, his kidneys, he was having some troubles like that. Uh, but, you know, taking the bump at the end through the, uh, what was it, through chairs, uh, aggravated that as well. So, you know. Part based on the match, but part based on injuries preceding or conditions preceding the match. With you, obviously, being the number one guy in ECW and Bam Bam being just a huge name in wrestling, was there ever any thought into that not being the main event of the night? Obviously, it's in Pittsburgh, so it should have been. Was there ever any thought? Because sometimes ECW and and Paul in, in a couple shows, for sure, I can think of. I won't name them, but there's a couple shows where it's like, why was that the main event? So, was there ever any thought of that not being the main event? No, no. That we that's where we were going, and we started from the very beginning, promoting the hell out of that match as being the uh, November to remember. You know, uh, it was a great undercard. Um, there were other matches on the card that could have very easily been main event match, um, but Paul, you know, again knew. You know, keep in mind at this point in Pittsburgh, uh, this is 1997. I've been on the road since 1986 and uh, actually late 85. 
you know, had been world tag team champions with Ricky Steamboat, uh, you know, had been UWF television champion, and all the while building a name in the business, but also a name in Pittsburgh because of that. So going, you know, going back and keep also in mind that with ECW having started, it was earlier that year, uh, I think Easter of 97, when we had the first live show in Pittsburgh. Um, and then we had, I think, four intervening shows before the pay-per-view. You know, so we had built, by that time, we had built an incredibly solid audience in Pittsburgh. Our television was doing very strong in Pittsburgh. And each show that we did in Pittsburgh from that first Easter Sunday was like 780-something. The next show was around 1,500, then 2,200, 2,700. And then from there, that's why I thought 3,500 would be a fair number to to, to, to shoot for, uh, you know, went from the 2,700 to the uh, uh, 5,000 plus. Huge crowd, biggest crowd in ECW history. You versus Bigelow, one of the biggest main events you could put out there. But just looking at the other matches in the card, obviously, you know, RVD versus Dreamer, which is a pretty high-profile match, especially with the WWF storyline being interwoven sure. in there. But Sabu and Sandman, like on paper, it's like, wow, this is going to be great. This is going to be you know, one of those matches. Can we follow this? Can we top this? When you're actually sitting there, are you watching the matches with Bammer? Are you saying like, oh, wow, we got to top this. we got to do that. Or, or you're not focusing in on the other matches at all? No, we were focused on our match. Um, I was just trying to keep my head straight. Like, you know, we, again, we didn't talk much about the match other than, you know, keep on mentioning the Flair Vader thing and that being the template. Uh, but, you know, m- more than not, it was for me, you know, I would, you know, of course, occasionally I would glance to monitor and watch, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head seeing anything that I thought was great or shitty or I wasn't, I was sort of just staring at the monitor, you know, keep my mind engaged. Uh, but I remember hearing, you know, my generation was taught to listen to the crowd. So, through the course of the night as all this is going on in my head and getting ready, you know, the butterflies are coming and, you know, the biggest match of my career up to that point. Uh, I'm also hearing the crowd pop and the chants and, you know, the, uh, the crescendos of the match, you know, I could hear that in the dressing room. So I try to keep, I try to keep myself isolated though, uh, from watching. I didn't want to get my brain you know, sucked into a match and uh, you know, be drawn in by that, and then lose my train of thought. Uh, and I also didn't want to um, give the appearance that I was watching the monitor for a minute, and then walking away, and then watching it for a minute, because that would be disrespectful too. So I tried to stay off. You know, there was a, 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 a separate room down at the far end of the uh, of the heel dressing room, and I, I dressed in there. Franny and I dressed in there, and and got ready, and, you know, typically before a match like that, you know, Francine would get pretty nervous, uh, because, although she was extraordinary in her role as the uh, Queen of Extreme and the head cheerleader, she also hadn't done, you know, that Barely Legal was her first pay-per-view ever, you know, so she only had a handful of these under her belt, and because of the magnitude of the match, you know, being on top, we had come in early, and, you know, she and several other people from ECW had come, and we had a big uh, 
dinner uh, the night before and uh, with my family and uh, some friends and things, you know, so there was a, you know, and we had been doing a lot of promotion around Pittsburgh. Francine had come in, uh, Bam Bam and Candido had come in uh, separately, of course. Uh, Lance Storm was in and we were doing appearances all around Pittsburgh, you know, Bam Bam with the belt, uh, uh, me and uh, Lance and Candido and Franny uh, as the triple threat in different places. Uh, you know, so there was a lot riding on this. You know, the, 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 the Pittsburgh was, you know, for that particular night was becoming an ECW town, uh, you know, as, as, as like a, you know, it was an ECW staple town, you know, that night. And because of all that, you know, so there was, there was a lot of focus on it and it, it brought that, it just brought the magnitude of the whole thing up because it was so high profile in Pittsburgh that night that, coming you know flying back home uh the week before you know the security at the airport and the gate agents and stuff at the airport wishing me luck uh bam bam told me that when he got there they were telling him the franchise was going to kick his ass and you know that kind of thing so when you get that kind of feedback you know from people that don't even know you uh you, you know that you're on the right track I wanted to mention if you watched the matches before, because I don't even know if you've ever seen it as far as Sabu versus Sandman, but it is widely regarded as one of the worst matches uh, in ECW <laughs> history, just because there's so many screw ups and there's, it's just, it was weird. Like, uh, like the chemistry just wasn't there that night. Did you ever get a chance to kind of go back and look at that match or have you heard any, any of the feedback from that match? Because it yeah, was, strange yeah i've seen the match um you know i've watched several times yeah it's it's odd because there's some wrestlers like me and raven have always had great chemistry you know we could two of us go to the ring right now not having seen each other or talked and go out there and have a decent match you know uh, we never had a bad match and other guys you, you can't buy a good match with rick steiner was like that for me and uh it was nothing he was doing wrong or I was doing wrong. Our styles just never seemed to jive, you know, it just you couldn't get on the right on that right track. You know, and on paper, if you look at Sabu and, and uh uh Sandman, you know, on paper it looks like an exciting match, but then when you start to break it down and you analyze it, you know, Sabu's stuff relies on precision timing. And something that Sandman was not the strongest at. You know, Sandman was a great presence, a great entrance. Uh, great at the violent stuff, but precision timing was not his forte. So, you know, if you analyze, if you take a step back and analyze it, you know, from a proper proper aspect, you know, you can look at that and see that there was at least a good likelihood that, that was going to happen. Um, you know, ideally, you hope that when two guys like that go to the ring, that both of them are able to hit their their best stuff. Uh, you know, Sabu was always phenomenal at selling and, you know, feeding into stuff of the other guy. Um, but I'm sure, you know, that Sabu, uh, my, I'm sure my guess would be that Sabu and uh, Sandman are probably like me and Scott Steiner, just two, two very different styles that just couldn't job. Throughout the night, there was, uh, a dark match, if I can just run through the results just quickly. Uh, dark match between Chetty and Spike Dudley. 
they beat Aaron O'Grady and Paul Diamond. Then when the actual pay-per-view starts, Candido and Tommy Rogers. Very interesting to kind of have Tommy Rogers out there, not a typical ECW type of guy. But then it breaks down into a tag match. Candido and Storm defeat Jerry Lynn and Tommy Rogers. Did you think it was kind of weird that Tommy Rogers of the Fantastics was in ECW? Or is that just kind of like, okay, you know, they're going to put out a good worker, a good wrestler. He might not fit the mold, but it might work, end up working out for the better for ECW. Yeah, anytime a guy like like, like uh, Tommy would come in, you know, it, of course, I'd done him for years prior to that and was always impressed with his work. He had a phenomenal look um, and, you know, really had a good work ethic. You know, so I knew that he and Candido would be able to have a good match. Um, there was a part of me that felt bad for those guys when they came into ECW because, you know, it's like we knew that the, the torch had been passed. And yet oftentimes those guys would come in and you get the feeling they thought like, okay, what am I going to get my big push? And, you know, whether Paul told them or didn't tell them, I have no idea, but he didn't, he should have told them that they're there to provide the rub. You know, that, that we're, we're going to use you to get somebody else over, and you're going to make a good living in the process. You know, you're not going to get jobbed out or anything. And some guys did that well and did it with a smile on their face, and others, you know, came and didn't last long and left. Uh, Tommy, as I recall, was one of the guys that did it with a smile on his face. You know, he was eager to, to work with the guys and teach them. I'd often see him in the back talking to the guys, and you know, um, you know, about what went right, what went wrong, that sort of thing. You know, Tommy, Tommy, uh, was always impressed with his professionalism. In this tag match, Jerry Lynn will end up making his pay-per-view debut. But another guy who would obviously Jerry would become world champion eventually as well. But another guy who had a nice little title run that's just incredible makes his debut and actually loses to Mikey Whipwreck. And I just remember at the time thinking. I thought this guy was getting a big push. Why is he losing to Mikey Whipwreck? Was that like you ever like look into like, hey Paul, what, what was that booking about? I thought we were giving this guy a big push. What's going on here? Yeah, and, and who you know, Dusty Rhodes did something years ago. Uh, the guys were all bitching in the dressing room. This was the time when Dusty was doing all the hot shot angles and the run-ins, and uh, you know the, the guys were starting to complain in the dressing room pretty openly. And Dusty came into the dressing room one day and said, okay, I understand you boys are, uh, you know, all questioning my booking. And, uh, and you know, he spoke for about 30 seconds, and then he turned around, he had a piece of paper, a pencil in his hand, or a pen, and he turned around, turned his back to all of us, and he starts doing something on the paper, and he turns back around, and the paper's folded in half, and he holds it up, and he says, what do I have? And on the, the part that we could see, all you could see was like half of a circle, and so everybody starts saying, it's a ball, it's a circle, it's, a, it's, a, it's Earth, it's a planet, whatever, um, you know, round things. And Dusty waited until everybody exhausted their, their, their guesses. And then with a little grin on his face, he opened the paper up, and it was an Easter egg. All we could see was the bottom third of the egg. And he said, always remember, unless you, know what, unless you can climb inside my head, you have no idea what I'm planning. You only see a part of it. And I always remembered that. That always stuck to me. And, you know, I thought it was a great visual. Made his point. You know, it's easy for us to complain, but keep in mind when you're booking, you're not just booking Shane Douglas versus somebody else. You're booking Shane Douglas versus somebody else and about 20 or 30 other guys, um, plus putting the TV together. 
And, you know, so it's easy to sit there and complain about one finite point in the booking, but until you see that overall picture, and if you can't climb into Paul's head or Dusty's head, you can't tell exactly what they're doing. And so it always requires some amount of blind trust from the talent to, to go in. And oftentimes that's where the problems arise, you know, where somebody, uh, you know, starts to think they're going to the top of the pile and they don't. And, you know, they, then the, 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 the griping and the bitterness starts, um, you know, so it's, it's always tough to say it's easy to second guess anything, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is the easiest job in the world. But when you're sitting there, if somebody came to you tonight and said, okay, here's a tablet, I want you to write out the matches. Here's your roster. Here's who you have to work with. Come up with an, an incredible show. And that's a little bit different. You know, it's a, it's a lot harder than, than just sitting and complaining about a spot or a, or a particular segment. Then you kind of move on. It's Taz defeats Pitbull number two and in very, very quick fashion. But the most interesting part to me of this is, it was it was okay. Pitbull number two had just, you know recently came off a good feud with you, and you know he's still kind of high up on the card. Obviously the Pitbulls were a good tag team in ECW, but he yep. beats him basically a minute thirty seconds. Taz gets the win, but it almost seemed like they were building more towards Taz versus Brackus of all things. Did you ever just <laughs> sit there and say, what are we doing here? What, you know, what are we doing building this guy up? What are we building him up for the WWF? I mean, what the hell's Brackus doing here? Yeah, I, I don't remember putting a lot of thought into it at the time, but I, I think, you know, my thinking at that time was, you know, we got a guy from WWF here. He's going to get a little bit of a push so he can get fed to somebody. And, you know, there was no, there was no chance that some mid upper mid card guy from WWF was going to come in and get a push over one of our guys. Uh, you know, it's uh, unless they had plans unless Paul had plans for him. If he had plans for him, you'd see it almost from the beginning, you know, the, the big fanfare of his arrival, et cetera. And you didn't see that with Brackus, you know. So, you know, Paul did the best job he could in getting this guy over as a killer and all that kind of thing. Um, and you saw along that last that it was just to feed him to somebody. Then there was an ECW World Tag Team match, which was a, a fatal four-way, basically. FBI ends up winning. Dudley Boy's involved. The gangsta natives involved, Axel Rodden and Bolt Mahoney involved. Yep. Now, those are those kind of matches where it's like, can you top this? They're taking chair shots <laughs> to the head. Do you ever go to those guys or any of those guys and say, hey, we're you know we got you got a, a table spot plan for the main event? Like, can you can you guys just not do uh, you know not do this, not do that? Or is it one of those things? that's like, okay, we're just going to have to top you guys no matter what you do. Yeah. Well, there was you know. There was definitely the, uh, the thought that, you know, go out and tear the house down because we're going to try to top it. You know, we may not, but we're going to try. Uh, there was a real professional camaraderie amongst the boys. Uh, when I say the boys, I mean the guys and the girls in ECW. Everybody worked hard and everyone wanted everybody else to get over because if somebody on the card didn't get over, then that meant possibly, you know, lower pay a couple weeks down the road. Uh, so everybody was really on the same page as far as that goes. Uh, but there was a, a point where ECW almost became a character. Well, it didn't almost, it became a caricature of itself. Every single match, everyone was getting on the microphone and fucking this and fucking that. 
Uh, everybody was getting hit with chairs and throwing chairs. Everybody was breaking tables. I mean, I, there were nights we'd have at the end of the night we'd have you know twenty tables broken in the back corner of the ECW arena, and you know there was no uh, structure to it. It was just everybody was doing everything they thought was going to get over. So if Shane Douglas goes out and throws the f bomb around, well, let's all go out and throw the f bomb around. That'll help us get over. And then if Sabu gets over by putting somebody through a table, let's all put somebody through a table. And if Balls gets over by swinging a chair, let's all swing a chair. And if, you know, so-and-so gets color and that gets over, let's all get color. You know, so it got to the point where by the time the main event would go on, and I was quite often in that match, you know, the fans had seen everything ad nauseum under the sun. You know, they'd seen 15 tables broken. 35 chair shots, uh, fighting around the arena, uh, 400 F-bombs thrown around. And it became overkill. You know, it's, uh, Bruno San Martino told me a long, long, long time ago. I, ne- I never, I asked him, uh, when I was a kid, I used to always watch the matches at the Civic Arena. And I'd watch the match and I'd always turn around and keep looking at the entrance because you'd occasionally see Dominic out there or jumping Johnny Rods or, you know, or Johnny DeFazio, rather, uh, or uh, uh, Johnny Rods, or somebody, Stan Hansen. You'd always see them at the curtain or standing around the entranceway, and then they'd go back in. I never once saw Bruno San Martino out there. And I was at that arena every month. And so years later when I met him, I asked him, I said, did you have, like, a monitor or something in your room? I'm thinking as a champion. He's, you know, he's got the big office back there, nice posh office with his own television and all that kind of thing. And he said, No. And I said, well, how'd you watch the matches? He said, I didn't. And I said, well, that's strange. I said, you know, you weren't interested in watching the matches? He said, no. But he said, always remember, kid, the fans will pay to see you once. And, you know, so that always stuck with me. And, you know, the idea of being, if Bruno goes out in segment one, segment three, segment five, in the main event, well, by the time he goes out for the main event, you've already seen him three times. And it takes some of the luster off. So if by the main event you've already seen 15 or 20 tables broken and how many chair shots and everybody getting color and everybody using the F-bomb. All you can go out and do is, is repeat the stuff the fans had already seen. So there was a big push, you know, me and Taz and Bammer and Chris, Perry Saturn, uh, Raven, a bunch of us went to Paul and said, you know, look, you've got to get this under control. Not that I'm trying to limit anything just so Shane can get over and fuck the rest of the show, but something has to be left for the main event. And I, I chose to take a night that I wasn't on in the main event to make my point. So it didn't sound like I was being self-serving Raven and Terry Funk were working in the CYO in, uh, Wilkes-Barre. And, uh, you know, that night I went to Paul and I said, Paul, please, in the team meeting before the show, tell everybody, because Funk and uh, Raven had uh, a pretty important spot set up at the table. I said, please make it a point to tell everybody to in no way, shape, or form touch or use a table. Please leave that for them, and let's just see if it gets over. And he did. He was reluctant about it. He didn't want to do it, but he did. And that night, everybody stayed away from it. And when Raven and Sam and, and uh, Funk pulled that table out that night in the CYO, the place exploded, came unglued. They've been sitting there all night. They typically see 
20 tables broken. They hadn't seen one even used. So when they finally got it, you know, it's, it, it worked. Uh, the boss said, that, that's, that's the reason we're telling you this, you know, to make that when they finally do get it, it's special. And they haven't seen it a hundred times. So, you know, there was, there was an impetus for it. Never because me or I'm sure anybody else wanted to limit anybody else. It was to let's make sure that there's something left for the later matches. And if not, you know, as somebody who was always on the later part of the card, uh, it was it was difficult, you know, to go out there, and not that you tried you, that you were shying away from it, but you know, nobody wants to read chapter two of the book over and over and over again. When you start reading a book, you read chapter one, chapter two, you can't wait to get to chapter three, and so on. Um, so, in essence, ECW was giving them chapter two over and over and over again. And it really was having an effect. You know, it got to the point where chair shots would barely elicit a response from the crowd. And God forbid if you put your hands up to protect yourself, you know, with all the CT and stuff we know about today, if you put your hands up to sort of lessen that blow a little bit, the fans would boo you. You know, and it was getting to the point where it was going to end up leading to somebody dying in the ring. You know, if every week we have to keep on topping and every week, we have to keep on topping the matches earlier than us. And every week the matches earlier than us are going out and giving everything in the kitchen sink. It's just a matter of time before something negative happens, somebody getting seriously hurt or worse. And so at that point, we, you know, once that worked in, in uh, Wilkes-Barre, we then started pulling back and segueing, you know, a little bit back to some semblance of control. And so, you know, if you if you weren't told to get on the microphone, if you didn't have express permission to get on the microphone, you don't get on the microphone. If you weren't given express permission to break a table, you didn't break a table. Swing a chair, you didn't swing a chair, et cetera. And, and it, it, it got ECW excited again, exciting again. It is amazing how many chair shots and other stuff that they definitely use or table spots when it's like the first match or stuff like that. It, it is kind of strange in a way because you're used to kind of saving it to the end, but you know, as I kind of move along the card here, ECW versus WWF flag match, RVD, Tommy Dreamer goes to a no contest. At this point, are you aware? I mean, obviously, we everyone knows Vince put in money so ECW can have some pay per views, but are you aware of Paul's relationship with Vince as far as Paul being on Vince's payroll? Were you aware of it at this point? No, at that point, no. Um, I learned that uh, proof positive. Whenever I was, uh, it was after the pay-per-view, I had the elbow surgery and I was doing the color commentary with Joey and I was in the uh, studio one day, Joey and I were there and typically we would get there and wait hours to to do our on cameras because he was still editing the show and doing this and doing that. He he didn't arrive two hours late or three hours late or five hours late. you know, so we're sitting there. Uh, the studio is the, just a small room in Ron Buffon's parents' house in uh, uh, New York. And uh, I'm sitting there with, next to Joey on the couch, and Francine's with me. And we're sort of half dozing off because Paul's taking his, you know, Paul was a perfectionist when it came to the production of the show. And, you know, he would do something over and over and over and over and over again until he got exactly like he wanted it. And, you know, the results spoke for themselves, but sitting there and watching it was maddening, especially when you're waiting to go on camera and you can feel your energy dropping, dropping, dropping. 
Well, we're sitting there, and the phone rang. Paul was in the middle of something. He reached over and hit the speakerphone. And Paul Heyman, and I heard Vince say, Paul, I, you know, we all know Vince's voice. And Paul about broke his back trying to come up out of that chair to grab the phone and get it off the speaker. And he jumped up and grabbed the phone and walked out of the room. So he walked out of the room after Ron and Charlie. I said, what the fuck is that piece of shit doing calling here? And they both timed it up pretty quickly. So I knew at that moment that something was going on that shouldn't be going on. And I told Paul when he came back in the room, I said, look, I'm not going to ask because I know you, you won't tell me the truth anyway. I said, I'm just going to tell you this. That piece of shit will stab you in the back the first chance he needs to. If you think he's your friend or whatever you're getting from him is uh, to your benefit, you're, you're sadly mistaken. And you know, it turns out history has proven me correct. And, and uh, you know, that, that said, you know, it's, it's easy for me to just throw a line out like that. You know, it, it's, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm stunned and shocked even now that Paul was able to keep ECW running as long as he did. You know, it was, uh, you know, there was the, 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 the buildup and everything was fine. And then suddenly we're working in front of 5,000 seat venues and checks are bouncing. It, it didn't make sense. You know, checks were clearing from Flagstaff, which was 50, 60 people in Jim Thorpe. And now we're wrestling in front of 5,000 in Pittsburgh, 45 or 4,700 in Chicago. Uh, you know, all these places are, you know, great houses, Buffalo, New York, et cetera. And uh, the, the number, the, the checks are bouncing everywhere. It just didn't make sense. You know, Paul was really had his back against the wall. You know, you know, you have to make payroll every week. And uh, at this point, by and large, the checks hadn't been bouncing yet. This is preceding that. So, you know, the fact that keep, keep the company going a lot, everything's expensive. Even though we had a skeleton production crew, it's expensive to do that. To get the, uh, you know, the tapes and get them sent out is expensive. To, to get the lighting is expensive. The sound equipment is expensive. To pay everybody to get all that stuff there is expensive. Airfare to get everybody to and from the show is expensive. Uh, the building rent ain't cheap. Um, you know, everything requires money. And at that point, you know, as we built up that roster, you know, we've mentioned it here. You know, it was, uh, you know, PJ was coming in, Rod Van Dam was coming in, uh, Lance Storm was in, plus the guys that had been there, like me and Taz and Sandman and Sabu and you know, all the rest of the guys, Tommy Dreamer. Our pays were steadily going up, up, up. You know, so how Paul was able to keep the doors open as long as he did seemed nothing short of a magic trick, a magic act, and. You know, we should have all, I should have been smart enough to see at that point that, you know, there was some kind of skullduggery going on to keep this thing going. But, you know, they, we were having so much fun and everything seemed to be going in the right direction that we, none of us, me included, could fathom that, you know, something like that, you know, relationship with Vince McMahon was, was part of the reason. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Very true, and very crazy looking back that, uh, you know, Paul was working with Vince, basically, or, or working under Vince's payroll the whole time. But it is interesting that, that whole, the whole flag match with RVD and how that whole thing kind of unravels into a no contest. But moving along the card, you got a tables and ladders match, which we talked about, Sabu versus Sandman, which was almost, you know, very laughable as far as it being, a, you know, just a huge uh, car wreck or huge train wreck. 
whatever you want to say, it was just a crazy match. But then, of course, to you versus Bam Bam in the main event, this is your hometown. You're going to take it home. Was there some sort of time limit that Paul gave you on the match? Obviously, the match goes about 25 minutes or so. But was there something where he says, hey, I need a good 20 out of you, or, or does he not even give you time constraints as far as the main event was concerned? No, we, we, we definitely had a time constraint because uh, pay-per-view. You know, so you pay, uh, at that time it was a quarter million dollars, and you have satellite time until this moment. And at that moment, you could be in the middle of the greatest match of all time, you're going black, you know, so we, we definitely had time constraint through the course of the show. Uh, I remember Paul kept going and like to earlier matches and said, Hey, can you shave two? Can you shave five? Uh, don't go longer than this because he didn't want to get to a point with this match being what the entire show is built around, not just the house show, but the pay-per-views built around and the future storylines are built around and leave us with six minutes before we go dark. Um, because it wasn't like you pick the phone up and tell the pay-per-view company, hey, we're running a little bit long. Can you give us 10 more minutes? Uh, when, that, when your time that you paid for was out, the satellites got disconnected, and you were dark. So, you know, through the course of the show, Paul was going through and manipulating earlier matches to try to shave time or save time and not go too long. So it did allow us the time. He did come to us and ask, ask us how much time we needed. And, you know, Scott and I sat and conferred and thought that if we have at least 20, you know, that'll be, that'll be okay. The, the more we have past that, the better. And so, you know, I think Paul throughout the course of the night worked to make sure that we had the minimum of 20. And like you said, it ended up being the 25. Obviously, Bam Bam, like we talked about, it was a kind of the template of, of Vader versus Flair when Vader basically dominates the whole match. So Bigelow basically dominating the whole match. It's a little bit of a slower match for ECW, but, you know, it just shows you he's kind of the monster. He's just really, really having his way with you. Is that kind of, you know, the way you always envisioned you versus Bam Bam at, at that moment? It's just like, you know, you're the, the face in peril. Basically, you're gonna you're pulling a, a bit of a Ricky Morton here, where you're you're really really selling a lot, and and he's really really showing, you know, your hometown crowd that he's a monster. Yeah, that that was the, that was it from the very beginning. Uh, first of all, because of his size, you know, my typical match I couldn't have with Bam Bam. You know, I mean, I couldn't you know throw Bam Bam around and and do a lot of the things that I would do with other guys that were smaller. You know, he was, so, he was such a big guy. I couldn't get, like, when I was belly-to-belly him, I couldn't get my arms around to lock my hands. You know, sort of like, you know, uh, you know, just sort of put my arms up under his armpits and just swing him around. Um, you know, he was a big, big, big man. And so because I couldn't do a lot of those types of things, and let's be honest, at that point, you know, nobody wanted to see chain wrestling between me and Bam Bam Bigelow. He'd already resoundly defeated me for the title. He had beat me multiple times in intervening matches, uh, rematches. And the last thing we wanted to see in Pittsburgh or anywhere was, you know, you know Scott uh, Bigelow and Shane Douglas, you know, doing a chain series or whatever. And, you know, Bam Bam, as, as proficient as he was in moving around, he wasn't going to do, you know, fish out of water or London bridges or anything like that. So, 
the, the styles from that point of view really didn't have a lot in common. You know, I wasn't able to do the type of stuff that Bam Bam did, and he wouldn't be able to do the types of things that I did. So it, it required some kind of a different match. And for me, it was, you know, just looking at the two of us, it's completely believable just on that alone, but then you add in how quickly he defeated me for the world title and the intervening three matches. Uh, to me, you know, we said earlier, swerving an audience is the best way to go. When you think the audience, when the audience, when you think the audience thinks you're going right and you go left or they think black and you give them white, you get them. And because of the way that we had done everything from uh, the madhouse of extreme through the intervening rematches, and now here in Pittsburgh, it almost dictated that he's going to beat the shit out of me leading into this. We wanted uh, My thought was I want it to look like – I want the people in the audience to, to be on the edge of their seat thinking like, holy shit, the franchise really is done. He can't do a thing to this bastard. And that was the template for the match. You know? So, yeah, it was a bit slower, more methodical than, than most ECW matches. But in, in just you know, just popped into my head uh, again the brilliance of Paul's booking. So you know, Bam Bam, or I mean uh, Sabu and uh, Sandman being on before us. Let's assume they had hit on all cylinders. If they went out there and delivered on everything, you would have had this fast-paced, wham bam, thank you, ma'am, uber violent match, and then coming into this plodding, trudging slog of a match where the franchise is going to get his ass handed to him. Um, I think that you watch the crowd, especially you can see it in their eyes about five minutes into the match. They get almost serenely quiet. You know, like they, they really believed that the torch had been passed and this was just the last thing we had to do to get Scott booked with somebody else's champion and then see where they would take Shane. And at that point, all we had to do is deliver the finish, and we had them. So the intervening stuff that we did in the match from bell to bell was almost perfunctory. It, it had to look like Shane Douglas was getting slaughtered. And boom, you hit the belly to belly onto the table for the one, two, three. You end up winning the world title back. It was the loudest pop of the night for the victory. Did you sense that you were going to get the loudest? Kind of know that going in, and did you feel it after the victory? I was never so pretentious to think I know I'm going to get this big pop at the end of the night. Um, I never expected a pop that big. Um, I knew we, you know, obviously we knew where the match was going. So I knew we had that ace in the hole. The question, the only fear I had in the template that we had for the match was, will we lose them? Uh, because, you know, if it gets to the point where it's so insurmountable, uh, so unbelievable that you could make a comeback, then you could really lose them. And in a place like Pittsburgh where they're, they're here to, to cheer on the hometown hero, if you take it to the graveyard too deeply, you could lose them. And, you know, so what would have been the most atrociously bad thing that could happen would be, you know, halfway through that match when people get up and start leaving, you know, or, or growing disinterested. Um, thinking, well, this is, you know, I, we know the conclusion Shane's going to get pinned. Uh, so I knew we had them. And again, knowing where we were going with it, as long as we put the pieces in place, you know, if we, as long as we went A to B to C to D in between, then the finish should work. And it did, thank God. 
Now, as far as the the aftermath of it, this is basically kind of, I mean, you've had title runs before, you had a little bit longer title runs before, but this is really kind of where the franchise puts the stamp on his ECW legacy, where he really becomes a franchise. He'd go on to hold the belt for 406 days before eventually losing it to Taz. Was that the point when you felt like the franchise, you held the belt for over a year, you kind of just were the dominant champion of that era? Or or was it earlier when we were talking about the NWA title, basically that episode where you become the franchise of ECW? To be honest with you, I, I never felt like the franchise had, uh, you know, earned the title. I never felt comfortable. You know, I, I never got to the point where I thought, I'm the champion. Nobody else can take it from me. There's nobody that can carry it. I had a dressing room full of guys that could carry it. And they were all phenomenal in their own way. They all had their own presence. And all of them were capable of carrying the belt, including Mikey Whipwreck. You know, so for me, there was there was always that pressure in the back of my head of, if I let up tonight, it'd, just, it'd be real easy for Paul to say, okay, Mikey, go out and pin Shane tomorrow night or whatever, um, whoever. You know, so I never felt, even as, as champion and coming out of that match in Pittsburgh, I never felt like, okay, now I can relax. I've got the top spot secured. Um, you know, so if, if any thought like that came, I, I knew the night that I dropped the belt to Taz that the reaction that they were giving Taz in the ring, uh, that was their respect to me. Because the fans, face, the fans loved, loved Taz. And I had told Taz, warned Taz before the match, uh, if you remember Taz, when he would win a match, especially for a belt, he would grab the belt and climb the ropes and hold it up like King Kong on, on the World Trade Center or the Empire State Building. And I told him, you know, as I was thinking through the match that night and going over, right before we went out, I said, uh, whatever you do tonight, after you win, don't, don't grab the belt and climb the ropes. He said, why? And I said, because the fans will identify that that's the passing of a torch and they're going to respect the fact that I've been the champion and if they think that you're rubbing salt in the wound or being disrespectful, it'll backfire. And I could tell he didn't, he thought I was like trying to swerve him or wasn't quite sure if I was being truthful with him. So if you remember the finish in that match, he slaps on the Kata Hajime and I won't surrender. I've never tapped my career. So, um, you know, I, I, I pass out and he gets the belt. So I'm laying in the ring with my eyes closed and I hear, I'm listening, remember I told you we listened to the crowd, my generation. So I hear, you, you piece of shit, you fucking suck. Fuck you, motherfucker. And I'm thinking, oh, I really misjudged that. So I crack my eyes open and I look. And it looks at first like the people in the audience are flipping me the bird. Like, fuck you, you piece of shit. You fucking suck my heart. And I'm thinking, boy, I really, really misjudged that, you know. And then I realized they weren't flipping me the bird. It was past me. So I rolled over and I look up and worst has up on the ropes, holding the belt over his head and go back and watch the footage. You'll see what I'm telling you. The crowd as he climbs those ropes. The crowd starts flipping the bird and yelling shit at him. And it was not, that they hated him at that moment. It was, they felt that he was being disrespectful in the passing of that torch. That's great that he, he's, he's got to learn to listen to the franchise at that point. But as far as, November to remember and, and, you know, just going back to that show and you winning the world title, what's it like when you go back through the curtain and, and you see Paul 
Is he extremely happy? Obviously, you know, the match is oh, yeah. the, the pop was the, obviously the, the, the shiny moment was the loudest pop of the night when you win the title. Obviously, it was one of the most successful shows as far as um, the house is concerned for ECW. What's his reaction to you when you walk through the uh, curtain to go to the back? He, but I first walked to the curtain. He was standing there. I want to, I want to say Ron Lang was uh, right behind him. And when we came back to the curtain, the dressing room, uh, you know, the ECW, the uh, Golden Dome dressing room is a bit awkward uh, because there are like the old days. There's a uh, the when you look at the ring from the hard cam, you're looking from a, where the camera is shooting from is above the dressing rooms. There's two dressing rooms. Uh, there's a central center, like utility room, which is where like the ice maker is and the concession stand is on the front end of, and then there's a hallway that connects those two. So you have literally have a heel dressing room and a baby face dressing that are separated by that utility room. So, you know, when you walked in, it wasn't like you were walking in a big open area. Uh, it was very choppy and like small hallways that sort of meander around and, even the locker rooms themselves are, are basically a, a wide hallway with lockers on either side. So when we first went back to the curtain, uh, there were some people right behind the curtain, uh, you know, a handful, you know, and they were giving, you know, standing and giving us applause and, you know, hugging us and stuff when we came back. And I saw Paul look at me with his arms up and he came over and he gave me a big hug and he whispered my ear and said, you just made the fucking, you just made your fucking legacy tonight. And then we went back in the dressing room and the boys all came in. We you know, cracked open some beers and, and had fun. We soaked in the moment. Now, the obviously, the show is one of the most successful shows that ECW put on. Was that the most profitable show in ECW history? I, because I didn't promote those, I can't say it with certainty, but I've got to believe if it's not, I'd, be, I'd like to know which one was more profitable. Uh, we sold $106,000 in tickets the gate. It was the first legitimate six-figure uh, gate. Now, remember, at that time, we weren't doing outlandish ticket prices. I think our ringside, our front row, was like the, the gold circle was, I think, $50, I believe. The rest of the floor, I want to say it was like 25 or 35 and then like 15 or 20 for the bleachers. So we didn't have like a, a hardcore homecoming. I think it was 100 or $105 for the gold circle. Um, you know, much exaggerated prices and compared to them. So the 106000 was definitely a record at that time for us. But if you magnify that out by the prices that were being sought around since then, it would have been probably double that. But... It was the first legitimate six-figure gate. We sold uh, $60,000 in T-shirts, and it was $79,000 in merchandise in total. We did $25,000 at the uh, the concession stand. So on every level, this was off the charts, the most profitable show at that time for ECW. Um, Now, because I didn't promote the Chicago's and the Buffalo's and places like that, I can't say if something did better. Uh, but my belief is that nothing else did top that on a legit number. And it, am I correct? Definitely was the biggest crowd in the history of ECW. Yes. Um, now I've heard people dispute that, but 
I know, you know, the building, when, I, when it gets disputed, I think it gets disputed off the fact that it's reported as 4,600, which was the, the building capacity in the Golden Dome. Um, but we went well beyond that until we couldn't fit any more people in the building. I, rem- I, I watched Paul, you know, pay off the, the, the uh, fire marshal. And then, like I said, we turned away another, you know, two or 3,000 people. So uh, I never saw before uh, that time anything approaching, even coming close to that. And in my time afterwards, like even in, in uh, Kissimmee, when I dropped the belt of Taz, I don't remember seeing numbers like that. The, the building in Kissimmee was set up a little bit differently. Um, but, you know, it was all relative. Like we at that time, we didn't go through and say, well, you know, my show sold the most tickets or whatever. It was just, it was a successful show. That was good for all of us. It, it, there, was, there was never any kind of uh, competition between like me and Bubba or Pam Betts or Dan and, and New Jersey as the, who had the biggest house, who sold the most tickets for the biggest gate. We didn't think in those terms. You know, it was uh, we were a team. And so if Pittsburgh did great, that was good for all of us. If Buffalo did great, that was good for all of us. Any reason why you guys kind of didn't go back to the Golden Dome as far as putting on another huge pay-per-view? Uh, only, the only thing I can think of, I, I, I've never had this discussion with Paul, but uh, the only reason I can think of is that Paul, you know, wanted to spread it around. You know, you get pigeonholed if you keep going back and doing your big shows in the same places. You know, the belief is that you can't sell out somewhere else. And so that would be my guess as to why Paul didn't go back there for another major major show. With November to remember, it's always kind of said it's the super card. It's always kind of said it's like the WrestleMania for ECW. Was that always considered to be the big show for you guys? Was that the general consensus in the locker room? And is that the way Paul treated November to remember? Yeah, that's the way Paul treated it. That, that was the show where, uh, you know, all the major storylines that had been going on would get blown off, you know, and then wrapped up. And then that's where, you know, typically new storylines or seeds for new storylines would get planted. You know, so if you remember uh, at the end of our batch, you know, there's Lance Storm and Candido and, and uh, Francine are out holding me and propping me up, you know, as I'm selling my arm. And Lance then goes on to have a short run in the triple threat before, you know, Bam Bam comes back and we do the double cross. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, the ending of one big storyline and the planting of another. With Bam Bam and a triple threat, and it kind of going back, that's also a great booking on Paul's part and a part of the aftermath with you, Bam Bam, and Candido reforming the triple threat. You turn on Taz, which is kind of a long form. Basically, Taz is going to take out Candido. Taz is going to have a great feud with Bam Bam. And then it's time for you versus Taz. Was that always mapped out to you? That's how it was going to be? Basically, you're, you're kind of being built up you're going to hold the title for over a year and taz is the guy that's going to take it from you there's no doubt no no i mean i knew that eventually that that's where we're going that's why we said bam bam and candida to sort of like you know for the like hercules through his 12 tests you know the taz to get to the champion has to to you know go through these uh these uh tests before he gets that opportunity and what would be handed to him 
But the actual Taz match that culminated in Kissimmee, where I dropped the belt to him, that match was laid out to me over a year prior uh, that Taz would, uh, I would be the first person Taz job to. And uh, the reason was, if I'm remembering correctly, Paul was pissed off at Taz because Paul used to reimburse us. So if I, you know, if I took Paul my hotel receipt and my, you know, uh, my meal receipts and that sort of thing, Paul would take the receipts and then add them up and then give me the cash back because that was money I'd spent. And then that way he would have the write-off from the company standpoint, you know, to, to offset what he had paid me in the stipend for those receipts. Taz wanted to, to keep the receipts and get reimbursed. So, you know, from a, from a company and business standpoint, it doesn't make sense. If, if I paid JP, if, if you spend money out of your pocket to, you know, do this podcast, we'll say, and then at the end of the month, if we have income coming to the podcast and you say, well, here's my receipts, this is what I spent producing it and do all my research and everything else, uh, then I reimburse that money. But then I get to keep the receipts because then my accountants write that, those receipts off. It offsets the money that I gave you. So we give money to you, but then we get a tax write-off for the receipts. And uh, I remember Paul being really, really ticked about that to the point that he was red-faced and pissed. And I want to say it was in Queens when they had this big, you know, this big uh, throwdown about that. And uh, it was like a week or two later when Paul came to me and said, you know, we're going to start this angle. He's going to go through Candido and Bigelow and then get to you. But Taz's, uh, Taz's first job will be done to the franchise. And, and, I, and he said to me in verbatim, I'm going to teach that motherfucker a lesson. And, of course, it didn't play out that way. So for a year plus, I backpedaled from Taz. You know, uh, beats me in under three minutes. Uh, you know, cross faces me at the uh, at the uh, match with... Uh, 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 I was going to say Landstorm with uh, Al Snow and, you know, all these different things that we did for a year leading up to that. The triple threat backpedals from him. I backpedal from him. So at that point, we I job, my heat is now flushed down the drain. I have, there's, yeah, but, what, yeah, but what? You're a paper champion at that point. You're a paper tiger. So when Paul called me earlier that week, of the Kissimmee pay-per-view that for a year and a plus I've been told I was going over him. He leaves a, a cryptic message. I've got an idea. And I spent that week trying to call Paul back and he wouldn't answer the phone, but we'll leave that for another, uh, for another uh, topic or so. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I got to jump back in here because I told you he was, but he was chomping at the bit to go through every aspect of, you know, your breakfast that morning and all the other things that went on that day. But before we get into the plugs, I just I have a couple points I just want to hit quickly with you. And one, where do you put it in the the early stages of the ECW pay per views? Do you do you set this as one of the defining ones or do you still think that barely legal is the uh the benchmark since it was the first? Well, you know, being the first, you know, in the inaugural pay per view for the company that was, you know, truly the nirvana for, for ECW. You know, in the early days of ECW, that was only a dream. We couldn't imagine ever really getting there. 
So having gotten there, that's obviously going to always have an aura about it because of being the first. But I think if you look at barely legal and stand it up to November to remember 97, and you put those two shows head to head, I think one clearly had the feel of being a big show and a big event. And the other one felt special because it was the first and because you were getting Taz versus Sabu for the first time. Um, and there were a ton of glitches that night too. The power going out and, you know, several other things uh, just prior to the event starting. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of glitches that, you know, necessarily the fans didn't see, but we were seeing backstage and, uh, but the, my overriding, overarching memory about the Bear Legal was how damned nervous everybody was. You know, the, you know, Anthony and Francine were both so nervous they like they looked like they were going to throw up. Um, you know, they they'd never done this before. It was just another day at work. It's no different if there's one person watching or ten million watching around the world, and yet, you know, they, you know, that's easy for me to say. I, I'd had you know dozens of papers under my belt at that point. But there there was a lot of stress in the building that night that to me and my memory and recollection of it sort of pulled it down because it felt uh it felt more like a choppy uh uh let's just get it done and get out of here type of feel. Uh the November remember felt like us hitting our stride. You know, like every we were firing on all all cylinders uh, the size of the crowd, the, the way the building was lit. Um, it had major league feel all over it. And that barely legal 97, uh, the, the tense nature was immortalized in uh, Beyond the Mat very uh, very infamously. Even seen right. Francine uh, being nervous and Paul talking her uh, kind of off the ledge, uh, so to speak. But then also, <laughs> you know, one thing we have to say, if you're a fan of ECW going back to the 90s, you, you know that one of the things you look forward to every year was getting the chance to see the Guns N' Roses music video for November yeah. Rain because we didn't get to see music videos like that all the time. We were dying for a video, the, the an eight-minute epic by Guns N' Roses. No, no, nothing lasts forever even called November Rain. So is that a song that when you hear that, it just elicits a lot of the great memories of ECW and the buildup for all those shows and all the hype that those packages, just to sell the home video, 30 seconds to sell that video, and it would encompass you as a fan. And I'm sure, like I said, if you hear that song, does it bring back all the, uh, the great memories of November to remember? Yeah, it flashes you right back. Every time I hear those first few piano uh, notes, you know, it just immediately takes you back there. But, you know, the thing that like, then and more so now, but even then, uh, you know, it's a, a major group like Guns N' Roses cannot be thrilled, and they probably don't know that you're using their their epic song uh, to, to, to build a show around uh, and, and make money off of. You know, it was, it really was a, you know, uh, an underhanded thing for Paul to do, but it, it, it's so reeked of ECW, you know, the whole FTW attitude, and and uh, and and that's what made ECW feel special. Like to me, uh, you know, I can't hear Enter Sandman and not think of Sandman. Uh, I can't hear Man in the Box and not think of Tommy Dreamer. Perfect Strangers, no matter where I hear it, I instantly see myself standing backstage with Francine, uh, getting ready to go through the curtain. 
those those characters became so synonymous with those songs because they were legitimate hit songs by major major recording artists. Now you go back and watch ECW uh, shows. Go back and watch November to Remember. Buy from WWE and watch November to Remember. And Shane Douglas comes out with some they made. Sandman comes out to something, you know, some song like you're listening to on a, on an elevator. And it just really pulls all the all the spirit and soul out of it. Oh my gosh. It was the the the, the soundtrack. We would go literally find it however we could just to get the ECW entrance music in uh, November to Remember, November Rain. It's uh, it's so synonymous. It's so great to take this look back at Shane. Thanks so much for uh, reliving this. And, again, this is the second time we've done this full retrospective show, when, of course, we will do more in the future. And we're going to forego Ask Franchise Anything this week because, obviously, there's nothing else that we could ask. Uh, my God, that John didn't cover with his research. But if you would love to get in on Ask Franchise Anything in one of our normal episodes, you can hit us up at the triple threat pod at gmail.com. But Shane, I'm going to throw you a slight curveball and I'm going to throw a stump the franchise at you before we uh, log off for this. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> so Man, we're going back 20, 20 years here to 1997. Uh, we know you're a very big uh, Kiss fan. You're a rock fan. You're a very, uh, you're a very, very in, uh, big enthusiast of rock and roll music. But how about how are your skills there at modern rock? What, what would you consider modern rock? <laughs> modern rock, uh, anything after 1984. <laughs> okay. No, no. Here we go. You ready? The number well, one modern rock song on the Billboard charts on November 30th, 1997. Would you like to take a swing at the, the and you're, it's going to literally shock both of you. What was the number one modern rock song on the Billboard charts on November 30th, 1997? Good Lord. Uh, 97, uh, I would take a stab and say probably Nirvana. I, I respectfully have to tell you, you are incorrect. And yeah. this, this, two of you are going to literally laugh your ass off when I give you the answer. The number one modern, I'm going to do my best, Casey Kasem. The number one <laughs> modern rock song in 1997 <laughs> on November 30th was Tub Something by Chumbawamba. <laughs> what? <laughs> God bless you. What was that? What was that? You just, now who, now Tub Something by Chumbawamba. Good Lord. Is that even rock? There's some like Euro pop song that came over into the uh, to the states at that point. It's a very uh, eclectic song. I have no idea what it's doing on the modern rock charts, but uh, yeah, that was the uh, that was the song. Uh, so if you were born on November 30th, 1997, you have no good <laughs> trivia to share with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about that. Jesus. Yeah, so I thought we'd just throw that in there as a slight curveball. We will get back to our regular lineup next week. We'll get back into a lot of the current events, and maybe we'll even take a stab into that wacky world of wrestling and what's going on there now. So if you want to hear more of this show and you want to hear more of the two-man power trip of wrestling, 
Stay tuned to this iTunes feed, to this podcast subscription feed. Every Tuesday, you're going to get a new Triple Threat podcast. And every Friday, you're going to get a brand new interview from John and myself on the two-man power trip of wrestling. So, last week, we had a pretty, uh, I'd say a pretty interesting episode with somebody you might know very well in the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. So, that was... uh, Uh Yes. Yes, that was quite the fun chat. I know you saw him over the weekend at the big event where John and yourself were there. Shane, you were sporting a lovely T-shirt from the pictures that I saw. But... (laughs) Before we wrap up, where are you going to be coming this weekend and doing your franchise business out in the wild? Well, it's coming uh, Friday night. I'm going to be in Baltimore. I'm down there for MCW. I get down there, get down there and have a, a good little match here set up. And uh, Saturday I go back. i uh, got to do a, sort of pay my penance uh, because I was supposed to be in Hamburg, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, several months ago after the Icon convention. And by time... We got out of there and got everything wrapped up and on the way in the traffic, and uh, we ended up missing the show. So I'm going back and paying my penance and making sure I give the fans their uh, paying back their, their opportunity to see the franchise. So uh, Friday night in MCW in Baltimore and Saturday night in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. So pretty eventful weekend uh, coming up again this weekend. Yeah, very nice. And then the following weekend we'll all be back up in Philly at the arena at the Icons of Wrestling Convention. The good news is that uh, Chad has rearranged his schedule to uh, be in attendance, so it will be a triple threat podcast party at the arena in Philadelphia in two weeks' well, time. Well, I was going to ask you, this past uh, Saturday, uh, like, what, were you getting your hair done or your hair did? or <laughs> you know, what, what was the deal with that? I like to pick and choose my spots, Shane. I like to uh, leave the people waiting and wanting more. And when they see the uh, the Kangol walk through the door in the vest, they know business is about to pick up. <laughs> Nicely said. <laughs> exactly. So if you want to follow the two-man power trip in social media on Twitter, you can hit us up at two-man power trip. You can find us on Facebook. And if you want to hit up the man with over 10,000 followers, in the world of Twitter, you can just visit him at the franchise SD, and he answers every single person that reaches out to him. It is so impressive uh, the amount of people he thanks and uh, and talks with on social media. You don't see a lot of people doing that, Shane. So I'm going to tip my cap to you. I'm not trying to spoil the gimmick like I did last week, but still, keep up the great work. So. I hand it over to you at this point, partner. Why don't you take us out the rest of the way here and get us on the road to yet another great episode of the Triple Threat Podcast. Well, if you've been listening to this podcast, you should pat yourself on the back because you're one of the inside crowds. You're one of the deplorable crowds that now has a better insight on the world than you did before this episode. Either that, because if you don't come to this fran- the, the Triple Threat Podcast, if you don't come get your smarts here every week, just another dumbass walking the street like everybody else. So make damn sure you're here next week because I'd hate like hell to come out and franchise your ass. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.